Welcome to our podcast, Bad, all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir. And each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which our festival takes place and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past and present. Welcome to Bad All About Crime. I'm Suzanne Leal. Before I turned to writing, I was a criminal lawyer, so perhaps it's no coincidence that my novels are about criminal law and criminal behaviour. The Deceptions is a story of wartime crimes and betrayals, while The Teacher's Secret is the story of a school rocked by accusations made against a much-loved teacher. And I'm Andy Muir, screenwriter, novelist and inventor of the paperclip. Crime got under my skin writing and researching for the Underbelly series. Uh, I adapted Underbelly Squizzy into the novel and then wrote two crime novels featuring Newcastle Houseband and Lockie Munro, Something for Nothing and the follow-up Hiding to Nothing. So this is our very first episode and we're very excited to have you with us. So crime fiction, as you've probably worked out, once you're hooked, it's hard to beat the addiction. And today we're going to be talking about the book that first got us hooked and the one that's most recently kept us addicted. So let's meet our guests. Dr Sue Turnbull is Senior Professor of Communication and Media at the University of Wollongong. She reviews crime fiction for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and has been a crime fiction judge for the Ned Kelly Awards, the Davitt Awards and is an ambassador for Sisters in Crime Australia. She's the author of the TV crime drama and media audiences. Our second guest is Catherine Dupoulou-Ménager. Over to you, Andy. So after a career in educational publishing, Catherine's now a teacher and facilitator at writers' festivals and literary events. She co-founded the St Albans Writers' Festival in 2015 and was its artistic director until 2018. She's now the artistic director at Bad Sydney Crime Writers' Festival and the Rose Scott Women Writers' Festival. So we're going to kick it off with you, Catherine. What do you most like about crime writing? I love crime writings. I'd say crime writing's social realism. I love what it tells you about people. I love the fact that it tells you about different lives and it does so within a plot that's at best quite tight. Um, You don't get a lot of redundancy or you hope not to get too much redundancy. And it just tells me about, it is addictive in that it's so plot driven. I think that's one of the things I love. Sue, let's get a bit more specific now. What's the book that first got you addicted? Well, I'm not quite sure in in retrospect which it was, but I remember, like many people of my generation, like many women of my generation, we were reading Enid Blyton, and in particular for me, it was The Famous Five. And when I was thinking about, you know, which book was it that actually got you started, it's more like it was The Famous Five altogether, but... In my memory, there was that title, Five Go to Smuggler's Top, and I thought that that particular book had a significant impact for me. So I've actually been gone back and reread it, and um, I'm happy to say and happy to confirm that it it actually, the reading of that was so pleasurable, was so enjoyable, despite all the things that have been said about Enid Blyton, that it, I can actually say, yes, this was one of those books that got me hooked as a very young person in the 1950s, reading what I think are thrillers and crime fiction. The funny thing is that Ana Blyton has actually really stood the test of time and she remains published today, although with some slight changes of both names and sometimes themes. Um, she's a little bit on the nose in some ways. What ways, for those who don't really know Ana Blyton? <laughs> Well, in Five Goes to Smuggler's Top, there is a character called Pierre Lenoir. He's at school with Dick and Julian. They go to obviously to a boarding school. We never meet their parents, really. Um, and and Pierre Lenoir is called Sooty Lenoir because he has black hair, black eyes, black eyebrows. And at one point further on in the book, it is revealed that he has brown skin. Now, Poor Enid Blyton has been over the years vilified for her racism and for for all kinds of offences against 
against what we now think of as a certain type of political correctness. And I was, as I was reading Smuggler's Top, I was thinking, is, is this, is Sooty being portrayed in a, a particularly racist way? And the answer is no. It, it, what's odd about it is he has a, a white mother and a white stepfather and absolutely no reference whatsoever is made to his cultural origins. So it's a complete puzzle. But he's an absolutely engaging and delightful and cheeky and wonderful child who is a great friend of the famous five. So there's there's obviously some kind of undercurrent there. And I suppose the other thing that, that when I was reading Smuggler's Top again with the benefit of um, many years in between was the relationship between the, the older female characters and their husbands. Because Aunt Fanny who is married to Uncle Quentin, is very subservient and keeps him very, very calm. She is the peacemaker, whereas Uncle Quentin is the fiery-tempered one. And you get the feeling that, you know, is there some sort of domestic abuse going on? And sure enough, in the other family that we meet, um, Sooty Lenoir's family, there is a timid wife and an assertive scientific husband. So the gender politics are actually fascinating before you get to, of course, the character of George, who was every little girl in the 1950s um, who aspired to be a tomboy. She was our role model. Whether or not she would now be diagnosed as having gender dysmorphia or not, George was our hero. Absolutely. The class thing is stuff is also interesting, though, in, um, in all the famous five and the secret seven books. It's because I came from a very different, I didn't, I wasn't living in the UK. So this particular kind of class background was mysterious to me and very, I found it fascinating. It was mysterious to me too because I came from the north of England, um, uh, which of course is a very industrial working class area. And though my family would probably be um, sort of lower middle class, the idea of going to a boarding school—I mean, this was this was something you did in another world altogether. And these children who went on holiday together and had boats and went sailing. Yeah. Um, this was phenomenal. It, it was like another world. So I was very well aware that these were people completely unlike Different. us. And also all many, not all of the, of the baddies are working class, inverted commas, lower class, inverted commas, or many of them, not absolutely all, but there are strange gypsy-like men skulking around. Oh, there's a wonderful um, kind of manservant in Five Go to Smuggler's Top called Block, who is apparently deaf and he's huge. Yeah. And he reminds me of Lurch and the Adams yeah, family. Um, but the actual baddie, and I'm, I'm going to give a spoiler alert, sorry to all of you there, the actual baddie is a smuggler who has run the smuggling business for years and years. So he's kind of like, almost like a James Bond character living on this island. And I should say about this setting, it's extraordinary. It's the... Um, St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall, which is mm. like the Mont Saint-Michel. The setting is this island in the middle of the marshes with these medieval um, buildings on the top and a tower. And the smuggler operates off this place, which is absolutely undermined by catacombs, which, of course, the children get to via secret passages. There's lots of secret passages. And you know, Kiran Island, the island to which they go. Anyway, we could obviously talk about this for days. Soon. There are lots of secret passages. I do have to say in Smuggler's Top, there is no lashings of ginger beer. That just doesn't happen. But there are lots of secret, secret passages um, which are um, entered via various ways. And, and as a child, every time we visited an old house, I'd be the one that'd be tapping the wainscot <laughs> in the hope that I might suddenly disappear into a secret passage in a different life. So you've read many, many crime books. Why has this one stood out for you in particular? I think it was the setting. I think it was the unusualness of the setting. And I think it was um, th this extraordinary place. I, I mean, I'm I'm always interested in setting in crime fiction. And this one was so outside my usual encounter. And I have to say something about the illustrations, because... I, I do remember as a child poring over the illustrations and they were all done by a woman called Eileen Soper who was apparently an extraordinary etcher and, and illustrated hundreds of children's books over the years. And the, the way in which these black and white illustrations, these beautiful pen and ink drawings evoke an era, a time and the adventure and, and Timmy's wagging tail. Um, I think... It's the visualization of it that also completely grasped me. But I do have to. I do have to point to the fact that 
I also think Enid Blyton is possibly to blame for the ubiquity of exclamation marks. There's an exclamation mark, possibly after every spoken word. And woof, said Timmy. Um, the last chapter ends with an exclamation mark. You know, it's glorious. It's, it's sort of, you can almost hear it. It's almost enunciative. Woof, said Timmy. And so they went home exclamation mark. <laughs> and of course, Timmy is number five of the famous five. And Timmy is not, in fact, a human. Who's Timmy? Timmy is George's dog, the the, the puppy that she adopted um, and who accompanies them on all their adventures and seems to me to be the ideal dog. In in Smuggler's Top, he, he, he has to hide because the, uh, the father doesn't like dogs, won't allow him in the house, so they've got him secreted in the tunnels. He comes to their rescue at some point. He attacks the bad guys at some point. He is just a wonderful dog, as Enid Blyton keeps telling us the whole way through. He is an admirable animal. He's as clever as Skippy the kangaroo, is he not? Oh, yes, he comes on call. He can open doors. Um, he seems... Yes, he is a real character and there's a real love of the animal. And he's very good at, he has an, he has an intuitive sense of who is not a good person. Like, cause he, you know, he growls and they all go, Timmy, stop growling. And then they realize that there was a reason for that growl. Absolutely. He really doesn't like Block, the manservant. So we know from the start, Block is not a good person. Well, that's probably a good point to sort of ask you, Catherine, as the artistic director of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival, what do you most like about crime writing? I'm not a true crime reader, really. I mean, I do read a bit of true crime and it's very interesting, but I like the kind of losing myself in, in plot, I have to say. Which is probably, you know, one thing that Eden Blyton was quite good at as well. Uh, Eden Blyton was good, but my first um, crime love, I suppose, when I was trying to, to remember was, so I, I, suggest, I mentioned that I wasn't, I didn't grow up in, in either Australia or the UK. I grew up in a small island called Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And French was my first language. So the first books I was given were called were by a writer called Caroline Keane, spelled Q-U-I-N-E, and they were the Alice series. Alice et le fantôme, which in English is the mystery of the tolling bell. Alice et les diamants, we know what diamonds are, etc. And they were culturally totally bizarre. So the, 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 the protagonists were Alice Roy, Roy, you know, and James Roy, her father, Bess Marion, and Ned, her best friends and boyfriend, which is kind of odd because those are really English names. And what are they doing in a French book? But, you know, you, I just kind of read them. I must have been six or seven, just carried on reading. Um, and it took me decades to realize these are actually the Nancy Drew books. They were, not only did they translate change the name of the of the character, Nancy Drew becomes um, Alice Roy. They changed the spelling of the name of the writer from Caroline Keane to Caroline, Caroline Keane. And it was really weird. And in fact, when I looked into it a bit more, um, I discovered that they weren't in fact written by Caroline Keane at all, either in either spelling. They were written by a syndicate, uh, by, sorry, they were rather a syndicate hired writers to write this series of books. And the first writer was called Mildred Wirt Benson, which is great. And so it's a kind of a whole mystery story in itself. Um, and I just, I just thought, what is this world? A bit like I did with Ina Blyton, because living in Mauritius in the 19, early 1960s, nothing that you could read reflects your reality because nobody wrote about it. Um, and I became addicted, I think, then to series. So I'm not, I couldn't say it was one book. But I just read all the Alice books I could get my hands on and all the Ina Blyton books I could get my hands on. In fact, when I went to live in England age 12, I had just discovered the famous five. And I will never forget our English teacher, Miss Clay, saying, Catherine, you've given us an essay to write. I think it's about time you got over those mystery stories. And I thought, this is cruel. I've only just discovered that. I, uh, teachers were really critical of your reading matter. And I and that that prejudice against reading popular fiction, you know, the Enid Blytons, continued all the way up until I, you know, I got to university and I was reading English literature, and I I had become a cultural snob myself. I frowned at my mother's thriller reading, and I was the one who would be seen conspicuously reading Dostoevsky <laughs> on a bus, and I, I completely turned away from from the books that had 
inculcated mm. my love of reading. And it was only really in my 40s that I, I <laughs> working as an academic and having a small child and being very, very tired most of the time, but unable to give up reading in bed, that I started picking up crime novels again and rediscovered my love of reading. Because the, it was the power of the narrative to carry you through a book that you completely absorbed in mm. for the for the duration of that book. So that that you know that cultural snobbery that was inculcated, and of course it's still around today. Absolutely. Because you know, the, where's the crime writer that wins the Booker Award? You know, and Peter Temple was the only Australian writer to kind of cross over from being a crime writer, a much awarded crime writer, to win. I think it was the Miles Franklin yeah. Award. So th- that's that. That prejudice, that perception that the popular, the crime, the thriller are somehow separate from the literary, which I think is actually a publisher's um, device to kind of categorize their books in bookshops and libraries so people will actually read them. But but that prejudice against crime fiction still runs quite deep. Yeah, I think that's that's very much the case. Andy, that's, um, that's a case in point for you. You're a crime writer yourself. Do you feel that prejudice? Do you feel that there really is a delineation made between literary fiction and crime fiction? Yeah, I think there is. I think that, you know, with with crime writing, as we've said, it is about the plot. It is about a narrative that's driving, you know, very quickly forward. And you're not really going internal with these characters. Um, You're not spending a lot of time thinking about things. It's all about, you know, what's the next clue? What's the next thing they're going to explore? And so it is that kind of drive which... I mean, you know, if you're reading a, a work of literary fiction, you're there much more for, well, for me, it's, um, you're there much more for the sentences and much more for sort of the, the prose and the, the, the lovely words, whereas, you know, crime, it's about the plot. Give me the plot and we'll just keep on going. I want to disagree with you profoundly. Oh, I fine. really, really do <laughs> because I've been fighting this battle for a long time. And in fact, Patricia Highsmith, psychological characters, you're not reading Highsmith for the plot at all. The fact that you have got characters and their relationships, go back to Sherlock Holmes and Watson, the relationship between those two characters. And if you're talking about good writing, I just mentioned Peter Temple, read him for the poetry of the plot. I think it's way too easy to say that crime fiction is a particular kind of genre that does this. It doesn't. It can be literary. It can be deeply psychological. It can do deep investment in character. And it can be beautifully written. So Look, sorry I, about that. I agree. No, I completely <laughs> agree. And I think that that's the the great thing about crime is it is it, – it, you can find whatever you want in crime. If you want to find a literary crime book, you'll be able to find it. If you want to find, you know, a, um, a prose poem crime fiction, you'll be able to find it. Well, there are there are two, at least that I can think of, crime novels that are in fact extended poems. One of which was shortlisted for the Booker, in fact, when Val McDermott was one of the judges. <laughs> yes, I think it's called The Night Train or something, um, and it's absolutely brilliant. So I might be confusing that with the Ian McEwan. We'll look it up and we'll put it on our website, right? <laughs> Let's drill down a bit, Andy. So you've talked about crime fiction being anything. You're Two of your novels feature the protagonist, Lockie Munro. Where did Lockie come from and why did you write about him? Oh, well, well, I sort of, um, I mean, my background was uh, working in television as a screenwriter and a, a researcher. So it's sort of, I was in this world and, and hearing these great stories and often when you're researching a project, you'll find tangents and other little snippets that you want to use but you can't actually put into something. And so I was just sort of building up this file of, of ideas and that's sort of where Lockie came from and um, it, there was sort of a, a, a lull in the sort of screenwriting trade for a period and I ended up working with a, a friend who was a house painter and so Lockie is kind of an amalgam of these house painters that I met um, and just kind of that workplace banter that, that happens where you're sort of talking about, you know, where's the best sausage roll, don't go there, the coffee's bad, those sorts of things. So that's the world that Lockie in, inhabits. And he's also got this kind of background of um, he's got a nose for trouble, um, he's got a, um, a background in Melbourne that we don't really know about and he's kind of ended up in Newcastle. He doesn't really talk about his past, but you know that there's something not quite right about um, about why he's there. So he, he sort of came out of, I suppose, a, a place of of 
frustration, I guess, because it was also, you know, you have these ideas that you'd really like to see turned into scripts or be used in a TV series and you don't get the opportunity to. So, yeah, Lockie's he's quite curious. And you've spoken where the inspiration for Lockie came from, but what was the first crime fiction book that you remember reading or at least the one that first got you hooked? Well, I mean, I grew up like I think, you know, most of us have got somebody in our past that, you know, had a real love of, of books and that was my grandfather and he had this quite incredible library that, you know, you'd sort of go and, and just pull books off the shelf really and I remember sort of pulling off, you know, the, the old green penguins that were sort of falling apart and I can't remember what the exact one was but I suspect it was probably the, you know, Sherlock Holmes or um, or the late Lady in the Lake um that was kind of the first one that I read. And he was always very kind of, I'm not sure whether you're old enough to read this yet, but, you know, if, if, just don't tell your parents or, you know, all those sorts of things. So there were, the books were there in the past, but probably the, I didn't realise what I was enjoying and engaging with until I sort of um, picked up uh, Don Winslow's The Winter of Frankie Machine um, secondhand. And it was just such an engaging story and it was just such a cool character that I then sort of just read his entire back catalogue and um, that was really where I come in okay I think I understand this and I'm really excited and want to just keep on reading this crime fiction stuff so yeah Don Winslow has probably got a lot to answer for so Suzanne you're also a crime writer um, what was what was some of the books that influenced your journey it's interesting I'm not sure if I'd actually um call myself a crime writer in the narrow sense of the world word. And I think at BAD, we talk about being all about crime. And I think as we've spoken about crime, we've realised just how wide it's become. So what I've written about really is community life, but with an undercurrent of criminal allegations. So my um, my work when I'm not writing is to sit on a tribunal where I decide whether people should be given the right to work with children or not. So those people have been refused the right to working with children check clearance. And as you might imagine, the stories that you get from this are quite fascinating. You have people who have had criminal convictions or have had allegations made against them or where there is some material that casts a doubt on their persona or their their character. And in the book I wrote, The Teacher's Secret, it's about a deputy head of a local primary school who is forced into an early retirement following accusations. I've always been interested in the person who's accused, whether rightly or wrongly, and how that manifests for the rest of their life and how it affects a community. So I suppose um, whilst I haven't written thrillers, my my, my recent book, The Deceptions, is about the Holocaust and the um, ongoing effects of that time on ensuing generations, there's so much undercurrent to so much work about criminal behaviour. And I think answering your question as to what was the first book that affected me, it's a similar book to that, that in, engages in issues that influence me and my writing, and that book is Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay. It's not at first blush a crime book, but it's a book with undercurrents of something gone terribly wrong and I think what I loved about it was the atmosphere that Joan Lindsay created. For those who who aren't familiar with the, the book, it's set in 1900 I think and it's set in a boarding school, a school for young ladies and it's a hot steamy day when members from the school go for a walk and some of them don't disappear up a rock, hanging rock, and never return and others do return. And I suppose what I loved about Joan Lindsay, and I think what I try and do in my writing to some extent, is not to give the reader all the answers. I think it's very easy to satisfy a reader and um, tell the reader exactly what to think and what happens. I think it's better for me as a reader and and as a writer to leave some space for the reader and the writer. I think Joan Lindsay really leaves that space. Although, as I was researching it today, 
there was in fact a chapter that was added to that book that was taken out at the last minute. I was going to ask whether you've gone back and read that chapter. I, I, I read the synopsis, if I'm to be honest, um, Andy, of that last chapter, and it it sets out what she understood happened, which really was interesting because I was reading old interviews with Joan Lindsay and when she's asked the question as to what happened, she says, well, who knows? And I'm thinking, well, clearly you did <laughs> because you had a, uh, a chapter that was taken out. So I love that idea of the editing process and the fact that once the book, and as, as you would know, Andy, goes to the publisher, it becomes almost a cooperative endeavour. Yeah, it becomes a dialogue. I always thought it was an alien abduction. <laughs> <laughs> the book was the film. When I finally saw the film, it, that, that haunting music it was so weird, and um, and that you know them, them going up the rock. I haven't actually watched the remake, which they did for Foxtel recently, but um, um, but that original film had that element in it that it was just too peculiar, and that the the Australian bush was so menacing and so weird that yeah, no, I was quite convinced that like you know Cartman and South Park, <laughs> they'd been taken. By aliens, <laughs> but there was something strange. Also, something about adolescence. Something about girls. Something about sexuality. All those white floating dresses and you know, sort of flashes. I had of- a boyfriend at the time who was when the film first came out, who was completely and utterly obsessed with Miranda. Yeah, you know, there, there, he, there was a certain moment there where everybody wanted to be Miranda with that hair mm. and a white dress. Mm. You know, even if she was going to be abducted, disappeared. By yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things, you know, we're talking about mystery and 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 not necessarily knowing what happens. I like the fact that you do, really, that, that it's tied up. But increasingly, it seems to me, it's things are tied up, but they're not tied up and returned to the state they were in before. So, you know, Agatha Christie, who is another person I've read every single book by, um, and, and twice some of them, um, the status quo is usually restored. Everybody lives happily. Ever- well, I mean, the problem people have died. That you know, life is restored to its normal, nice middle class to some degree. But now, that I think that happens much less. People are left visibly damaged and visibly broken, and they're never going to get better. Not, I don't mean that the people who've been actively, the people who are dead or, or injured, but but there's a lot of fallout which never gets restored. But it's things are brought into the light in a way that. I don't think they were. And that's more psychological or social. You know, these things happen. I think there's something really interesting there about um, th- this notion that you have an equilibrium and then a disequilibrium. Getting that one out was a little tricky. Um, because, in fact, it was people like Dashiell Hammett who was talking about society is the crime, right? So that what you actually have is a constant state of disequilibrium. Something happens, you resolve that particular problem, whatever Mm. it is, you find out what caused it and solved it. But you cannot solve the problem that is society itself because society is the crime. And is uneven, unequal and unfair. Yeah, and I think that's, that's where crime fiction casts light on what what are the key moments in a society that defines it in terms of the crime of the moment. So, for example, you can see waves, you know, through the 90s, mm. it was all about the serial killer and whatever the serial killer manifest in, in terms of a psychological anxiety about someone who kills for pleasure and targets women mm. and in a sexual way. And then the next wave was actually around paedophilia. And there's still quite a lot of that. And sexual child abuse, child abuse in the family. A lot and of we're that. now in a diff- the, the, the most latest wave that I've kind of identified is what you would call domestic noir, mm. where there is no detective in sight. But what you have is a woman in a situation surrounded by friends and with a partner and something is horribly wrong in that situation Mm. and she becomes targeted and that I think speaks to a moment around domestic violence Mm. so I think crime fiction actually in an in an interesting way tends to mirror the anxiety of the moment while society itself bumbles along being completely you know the crime scene you know there's so much inequality there's so much violence there's so much racism, there's so much this, there's so much that. You can't ever reach an equilibrium. You can just solve that one why. So you don't think that even in Agatha Christie where the, there is a, a desired state of affairs possibly where this kind of nasty stuff doesn't happen. It may not be an equilibrium, but it's a very nice, safe, middle-class world. I think, I think it comes down to something um, very interesting about anxiety, 
which is, and the way in which crime fiction addresses our anxieties, which is that um, a crime can be solved which allays the anxiety of that particular mm. incident, but the the, the underlying anxiety can never be solved. It'll Therefore, happen again. we need our next fix, our next book, mm. to go through and allay it for that next moment. So there is a way in which the, there is um, a level of anxiety in what you're reading and a level of anxiety in society that, that run in parallel. That's rather good, that, you know, that crime fiction is a kind of psychological tablet, you know, a psychological valium, that it keeps us... It keeps us calm by by finding the killer or the the evil person it, it answers the question why you know at the best mm. it tells us why something has happened but it can't solve the problem if it's pointing to social inequality if it's pointing to mm. gender relations or it's pointing to violence it can tell us why that particular instance happened but it can't solve the problem Crime books that I enjoy reading are those where there's often a false accusation, where the protagonist is accused and perhaps wrongly. And I think recently Candace Fox comes to mind, particularly with Crimson Lake and Redemption Point and Under Third in that series. And I understand that, um, Sue, you're, um, you're quite a fan of Candace's work. Tell me what's the latest book of hers that's uh, confirmed your addiction to crime fiction. Oh, that's a lovely segue because, <laughs> indeed, The Chase is exactly that. Um, Candace, I remember reading, I actually read... Eden, which was the second of her first trilogy first, and then went back and read Hades and The Fall. And it was quite clear at that point that you had a really, really original voice in Australian crime fiction. And without wishing to, to spend too much time on this, and, and we've interviewed Candace for, for Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival on a couple of occasions, she has an extraordinary background. You know, she had a, a mother who adopted something like 135, fostered 135 children. Her father was a parole officer. Her mother kept bringing injured animals home as well as injured children. And Candace was brought up in this melee. And somehow or other, that seems to have been the absolutely perfect background for a crime writer because her insight into humanity and the people who've fallen through the cracks and the ones that end up on the wrong side of the law. But her big shift most recently is to take this to the US. Of course, she's partnered with James Patterson in a number of successful novels. Um, but she's now written two and The Chase is the second set in the US. And I would love to hear from an American whether they can detect that this is an Australian because I I, I certainly think she's just done it brilliantly. But this one is set in a correctional centre in the middle of the Nevada desert where there is a mass breakout engineered in order to get one particular prisoner out. And our focus is on the woman who looks after the prisoners on death row. And she has a particular fixation on one um, called John Cradle who is in there on death row for apparently killing his wife, sister-in-law, and son. And we discover that our character Celine's family background includes um, another terrible family incident. So she's completely focused on this character, and once he escapes, she wants to get him back. But a canny reader knows right from the start that John Cradle is not all that he is seems to be. And this is once again Candace developing these characters and there's a glorious moment where she where the central character walks down death row and she sees it's something like the the child killer is crocheting the um the serial rapist is um sleeping that she humanizes all these men in these cages and including john cradle who is somehow or other rigged up a toaster as a soldering iron and is making a a sign that says please wipe your feet to put on the um, prison governor's door as a thank you to one of the guards, and you go, this is this is this is a very interesting character. Well, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because we, we often have authors that we follow, and as soon as you kind of know that they've got a book coming out, we're right there at the bookshop putting our money on the on the counter. So, is is there an author or a series that you feel the same way? Oh, look, I, I just, I mean, when I was thinking back to what made what I've read in terms of crime fiction, I just came up with okay, P. D. James, every P. D. James, more than once, often Sarah Paretsky. I loved Sarah Paretsky, um, partly because she had a female detective, V. I. Wachowski. 
again, a completely different milieu in Chicago. I had, I, you know, so I learned a lot of, I mean, I, it was just interesting to read. And also the food, she had lots of food. And she's an interesting character. So she doesn't go in, Sarah Paretsky doesn't go into depth in, about her background, but it's alluded to in every book. And there were just wonderful touches about the glasses that her mother brought from Italy, the precious crystal glasses that she takes out every now and then. Um, I did love Dorothy Sayers as well. I mean, what's not to love, you know, wish fulfillment. You create this bloke, make him rich, make him a bit damaged and a bit sensitive. And in the end, all works out happily. I mean, just just lots of stuff like that. Um, my mother-in-law used to send me Peter Corris novels when I was living in England. And it, I think of it as my kind of introduction to Sydney and I sent Peter's Peter's Lane, I think. Yeah. Um, Had you actually been to no, Sydney I, before? No. So that was your first introduction to Australia. Actually, that's not true. Peter I'd Paris. been there briefly, but not so. But it was, yeah, I, was, I think she was setting me up to come over here. A slightly odd choice. And to run a crime possibly. festival. <laughs> but um, also, I, in the 80s, I was really into lesbian detective fiction. So there's a woman called Mary Wings. She published by the Women's Press in the UK. She came in a flash. She came too late. They were great. They were tight. They were tough. They were funny. Um, so I, so really, and you know, and of course, all the Patricia Cornwall. So I kind of get into a writer and just keep going, and then, yeah, it's interesting. Um, Val McDermott, of course, started with the Women's Press writing a lesbian yeah. detective. Yeah, that's right. What's her name? Um, oh, I, uh, Lindsay Gordon. Yeah, that's right. Lindsay who's Gordon, a journalist? Who's a journalist? Yeah, yeah. And then her second series, she has a, a woman whose partner is a rock journalist, and they live in adjacent houses, oh, that's right. connected by a conservatory. Drink, smoke lots of dope. I seem to remember. <laughs> yeah, that the, the back catalogues fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and some date more than others. I mean, the other interesting thing about crime fiction is now you read something that was written forty years ago, and you think, just Google it, you know. And it's and it's, but obviously, you know, I'm not entirely serious but you realize the use of technology in telephones mobile phones if you could only if that woman would not have died why isn't she called you know which is silly but um uh, there's just an awful lot of that and you know the social class the servants the maids I, I just find all of it endlessly fascinating and you learn a huge amount about about the time and as a writer, would you say that the mobile phone has killed crime fiction? I wouldn't say it's killed it. It's certainly made it I certainly may say that it's um, made it much more challenging to plot. Um, if everyone's able to contact each other, it's um, it's very tricky. And you sort of see sometimes in books you kind of see authors coming up with all sorts of strange things like, you know, they've dropped their phone into the water and so the phone won't work and these kind of convolutions to kind of get around the fact that they can't call someone. And they never charge their phones. I mean, in real life people charge yeah. their phones. It's like never fiction. going to the toilet. Yeah, that's right. The number of uncharged phones is, is, is like it's too high. Mm. I found the year 2000 is a good year. It's um, <laughs> pre-mobile phones. Um, you've got much more mystery. Our internet is uh, is not really there, at least um, not in the form it is now. Andy, when asked about the book that has confirmed your addiction, you chose R.W.R. McDonald's The Nancys. And I noticed in the first page a mobile phone makes an appearance. What um, what did you think about this book and, and why do you like it so much? Look, I really liked it um, because it just sort of – it was something a bit different to what I had been reading and it took me a while to get there. I mean, I'd sort of, you know, as we kind of all have to kind of wrestle with our to-be-read pile on the next to the bed, this was in there and I just hadn't got there. And so when I finally did, I just, you know – was ready for it, which is often what happens with books. I think the books kind of find us as opposed to us sort of finding books. Um, and so, yeah, the, the phone's quite quite important. The um, the protagonist is is Tippy, Tippy Chan. She's only 11. So she's very much involved in that sort of social media scene and her sort of um, uncle sort of comes to, to, um, uh, to sort of help because there's been a bit of a, a family tragedy and things going on in, in the, the town. It's set in New Zealand. Um, there's sort of a few things going on there which, um, you know, fall into the crime sort of crime sort of scene, that, which was really refreshing, refreshing. You had these really interesting characters. You had a young protagonist and it was very much about the world today and, um, and it was funny. You know, I think there should be more fun in, in crime. You can tell it's a funny book from the cover. Now, obviously, we're on audio, so we can't see it, but it's a bright pink cover with eyes. So, and it it screams fun. And is that what it is? Was it fun to read? Well, it is, but I mean, there's obviously 
there's darkness in there, but um, the characters make it fun, and and you kind of you're going along with these characters to sort of work out what they're what they're doing and what they're sort of trying to understand and 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 um, and decipher. So it's yeah, no, it is. It's a lot of fun, and you know the the sequel is about to come out, which is one of the reasons why I picked it up, um, and I'm really looking forward to, to reading that. But you never read Nancy Drew, did you? No, I didn't. Because that's a lovely reference. To, to <laughs> it is. And, it's actually and Caroline yes. Keane. <laughs> that's right. And I found it difficult to read because I think I was expecting something like those books on some bizarre level. I mean, I'm not entirely silly, but on some level, I was thinking it was going to do that strange thing. But I loved it for its for its outrageous gayness. Yes. Because the, the the uncle and his partner are outrageously gay, and they bring all this outrageousness to this small New Zealand town, which just absorbs it and embraces it. And yeah. I found it <laughs> such a genial and, and lovely book in that particular way. Yeah, no, it's really endearing. I, I you know, it's certainly a book that I'd be recommending to people. So, is that cozy crime? Is it cozy crime? Oh, cozy! That's such a such a fraught word because it, it's often used to diminish crime novels that people don't think are serious because even within crime fiction there's a hierarchy right, <laughs> right. at one end sits it, it at one end sits your gritty realist crime novel and those are the ones that tend to win the awards and then at the other end sits the cozy the entertaining the, the enjoyable. everything the enjoyable the non-confrontational the the, the the something that is other to that realism and and Cozy can be used pejoratively, mm. but in the way that, that people do, if you, if you go on any of the American websites, people will identify themselves as cozy readers. Come out as cozy. They come out as cozy, they completely do, they embrace it and they go, I don't like the tough stuff, I don't want that, I want the entertainment, I want... You know, crime fiction where Timmy the dog solves the crime, where the cat solves the crime. There is indeed a whole, mm, a whole series of, of that. Cat, and cat librarians. And <laughs> librarians, <laughs> librarians and cats. Yes, yeah, and tea shops as well for some strange reason. <laughs> yeah, so there's that whole end. And if you look at what's on, on, you know, television in terms of crime series, you see those two things. And sometimes you just don't feel like, Vera stomping around Northumbria and being miserable on a Friday night. You actually want to go to somewhere more cheerful. I know it might sound odd, but you know, midsummer, where it's so baroque, it's so over the top that it's enjoyable because you, you have the sense that nobody's really getting hurt, that it is a game. Sue's spoken about the hierarchy of crime fiction. Where would you place Snow by John Banfield, Andy? Well, I, he's sort of. I found it sort of falling more into sort of the sort of traditional sort of English style of crime, but it's also, it's one of those books that you read where I was just really loving the language and I was just really captivated by, you know, these really fantastic sentences. And it's kind of, when we're kind of doing this stuff, I mean, we're all kind of reviewers, we're all kind of reading crime as part of an industry that we're part of. Um, We read a lot of debuts and... You know, John Banville is. I think you know. I'm not even going to tell you how many books he's read because I can't. I can't remember. But you know, this is an author that's been around a long time. He's written a lot of stuff. You're really seeing an author at the height of his powers, and it was just so good to kind of engage with an author at that stage. Can I just say, I I didn't like Snow. I didn't like John Banville's crime novels written under his pseudonym, which yeah. is. Uh, what's the scene? Benjamin Black. Benjamin Black. Yeah. I didn't like those either. I found them um, too grim and um, too try hard. And, and there is a way in which when I read Snow, I thought, he, all right, he thinks he's writing a crime novel and he set up this character going to this place, but he hasn't got the flair. He hasn't got the, the notion of what the genre can do. And I just found Snow a very depressing read, however beautiful the language was. Well, I agree. And he's actually come out as sort of almost ashamed of, you know, like he's like, – because this is supposed to be under the pseudonym. And he's kind of gone, no, I'm no longer ashamed to be writing genre. And so he's put his name on it this time, which is – like, again, that's a really interesting sort of conversation to have about an author and their work. Like, why is there shame in writing genre? And why do they do it so badly? Have you read Ian McEwan's crime novel? That is the one called The Night Train. It's terrible. So when when, you know, literary authors think they're going to write crime fiction, they actually – in Sometimes they, I think they condescend to the genre, mm. and they assume it's much easier yeah. than it than it is. Yeah, they go and slum it for the weekend, and you know, 
bash out 40,000 words. And they're not having fun. They should have fun. Yes, it's right. like all writing. All writing should be fun. You should be, you know, enjoying it as much. If you're enjoying it, the reader will enjoy it. I think sometimes you can want to work at reading a book, and I'd say literary fiction, inverted commas again, is it's, you know, you know that you're going to have to work. You know you're going to have to read slowly, think about what you're reading in a particular way. And with crime, for me anyway, I, re- I, I read very fast, but I don't have to do that. I read it for pleasure. And not that working isn't pleasure, but it's a different kind of pleasure. I bought myself mm. two. I thought over Christmas I'm going to have a sabbatical com- from crime fiction. So I bought two literary crime novels. <laughs> I shan't say what they were, <laughs> but they were both prize-winning novels. And they are, <laughs> and they went on my bedside table. And I started one on Boxing Day, and I read 30 pages, and I went back to my crime fiction. <laughs> I tried the other one a few days later. I read 30 pages and went back to my crime fiction. And I went, I think I can't read literary <laughs> fiction anymore. And this is, you know, as someone who studied English literature medieval literature and all the rest of it and i'm like oh but there are things in crime fiction that i'm really over so drunk women like what is it why i think it's a anti-feminist plot i haven't actually. seen as many as well, you i will you send you fixated on drunk I, women but, but the, everything you pick up they're throwing up and i'm thinking really not again i can only think of, <laughs> give me an example i can only think of the girl on the train she she was having a drinking She's problem drinking, but i understood yeah. that there's so the else? woman that the the woman at the window? Yeah. She All right. does a lot of drinking. That's two. That's two. Okay. I will, I will now make a list of them. Honestly, there are more than two. Um, 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 of course, now I can't think of a single one. I should have written them There all you go. But there are a lot, seriously. And it's a bit like the dead women on the slab, of which there were a lot. They're not so – anyway, that's a, another story. But and that it is a bit much, I think, this throwing up all the time. Yes, and it's it's just there's so many tropes in crime that you know we need to unpack. (laughs) The throwing up trope. (laughs) I wore Shosky. You know, she would often have too much to drink the night before and then go for a run and jog. Throw up everywhere, and then she had nothing in her fridge to throw up. (laughs) All right. Well, well, while those two argue, Suzanne, maybe we should move on to your recommendation or book you were going to discuss with us today. Yeah, look, I've got two that I'd like to talk about: The Ruin by Dervla McTiernan and The Safe Place by Anna Downs. So um, Dervla McTiernan has um, come to some prominence and The Ruin was her first book. What I love about that is that uh, Dervla lives in Australia but she's Irish and she really brings a the description of Ireland that made me want to just uh, close the door and immerse myself in the plot. So it's the book of a young guarder, a young policeman called Cormac Riley who has been in the guard for a number of years and the book opens with an early case he had where he found a dead mother in a house with two children being left behind. Fast forward and we come back to see what's happened to those two children and Cormac, who who has never really forgotten that case, finds himself immersed once more in the family. What I loved about this case is the understanding and the empathy that Dervla brings to her writing. She was a lawyer and she also worked in community services and social services and we're dealing with kids that have been neglected, uh, kids that need more care than they're getting all wrapped up within a fairly empathetic police investigation, which I thought was, was masterful. So good luck to Dervla for all the success she's since had. The second book is The Safe Place by Anna Downs. Uh, she's English but living in Australia. And, you know, it's just, it's funny. It's a really funny, witty uh, book that uh, the voice just dances. So what it is, it's about a young girl, a, a woman... 2021, 20, whose name's Emily Proudman. She's um, wanted to be an actress, hasn't been working out. She finds herself without a job and then suddenly she's offered the trip of a lifetime where she's to nanny um, a, a little girl and to assist the mum in looking after the girl in this French chateau in the south of France and it's a mystical, magical place that seems too good to be true and, of course, it is. 
There's a lot of parallels being drawn between that book and Daphne du Maurier because it's got that kind of Rebecca sense of the of the innocent going to an environment that is beautiful and magnificent but becomes more and more strange and more and more hostile. And I just thought that was wonderful, that evocation of place and this this house, which while beautiful became became a kind of prison and um, and the danger that was lurking and and where you thought that danger lay. And she kept you guessing about where the actual danger was. And I actually think the end of that book is 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 fantastic. It is very very good. Because mm. endings can be disappointing, but that one is not. No, and and to, to come back to Dervla McTiernan, I actually think her third book, The Good Turn, is her best book so far. Um, I I liked the ruin. I loved that opening, but I found the plotting a bit laborious. And I uh, the same with the scholar, which was the second one. She hadn't quite nailed the pace, but in the good turn, she manages. She actually switches focus to a different character. And I think having turned away from her policeman, she's actually liberated. And they go to a small town, um, in a small village in in Ireland, where most of the action unfolds in that book. And I think. Having escaped Cormac for a bit and going out, she she rediscovers the whole sense of place and the whole sense of this community, and I think it's the strongest book she's written. Good. I haven't written read that one yet. I've read read the scholar, so it looks like that'll be next on the bedside table. Time has flown, everybody, and we're at the end of our podcast. So I'd really like to thank you for joining us today, Sue Turnbull and Catherine de Poulumenager. We'll be back in a month with episode two of Bad, all about crime. That's when we'll be talking crime fiction and true crime with writer and journalist Caroline Overington and writer and art historian Catherine Kovovich. I'm looking forward to your company then. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our bad All About Crime book club. For more information about the podcast, the festival and our other events, subscribe to our website, www.badsydney.com. You can also follow us on Instagram. If you love listening to All About Crime, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime. <laughs>